This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books Network. My name is Clayton Gerard. My pronouns are he, him. And today I'm here with Dr. Joseph Plaster, author of Kids on the Street, Queer Kinship and Religion in San Francisco's Tenderloin. In Kids on the Street, Joseph Plaster explores the informal support networks that enabled abandoned and runaway queer youth to survive in tenderloin districts across the United States. He draws on archival, ethnographic, oral history, and public humanities research to outline the queer kinship networks, religious practices, performative storytelling, and migratory patterns that allowed these kids to foster social support and mutual aid. By highlighting a politics where the marginal position of street kids is the basis for a moral economy of reciprocity, Plaster excavates a history of queer life that has been overshadowed by major narratives of gay progress and pride. So thank you so much for being here with me today, Dr. Plaster. I wonder if you'd begin the interview by telling us a little bit about yourself. Sure. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me. Um, At this very moment, I am in Baltimore. I'm sitting in a room uh, on the Homewood campus of Johns Hopkins University. And my position here at JHU is curator in public humanities and director of the Winston Tab Special Collections Research Center for the Sheridan Libraries. Um, so in that capacity, my job is to co- cultivate a kind of exchange of knowledge between the university and the greater Baltimore region through you know, performance, oral history initiatives, um, a lot of community-engaged courses. Um, so I teach for the program for the study of women, gender, and sexuality, um, the program in museums and society. Um, I, I went to undergrad at Oberlin and then moved to San Francisco right after where I started this book project as an independent historian. Um, and my first fiscal sponsor was a small nonprofit archive called the GLBT Historical Society. Awesome. Thank you for that little introduction. Uh, Just to start off, I wanted to say that I found your book to be very powerful. It deals with a lot of topics that I've been exploring in some of my research and spotlights some issues that I think should really be at the forefront of a lot of conversations in academia and other areas of research and public engagement. So um, to start off, do you mind telling us a little bit more about how this book came about for you? Sure. Um, This project has been a long time coming. Like like I just mentioned, I started it after graduating from undergrad at Oberlin, uh, moving to San Francisco and just kind of walking around the city as a young person, uh, still trying to figure out what it meant to be queer, how I could be queer, Um, how I could develop my own kind of kinship networks in a new city. And, you know, for anyone who's been to San Francisco, it's, it's the city of a lot of distinct neighborhoods. Um, And that was especially the case uh, when I was first exploring the city, which was around 2005. 
Um, and there were a lot of gay neighborhoods too. So, you know, I would walk around the gay Castro district, uh, which didn't necessarily call to me. Um, I'd walk around the South of Market, which had a really vibrant leather BDSM scene, um, which I thought was exciting. Um, and I definitely spent time there, but I felt called um, mostly by the world of Polk Street and the Tenderloin. And, you know, I write in the introduction of the book that I first kind of romanticized it as a space of outsider culture. And I think that's true, but there was something to the the public queer cultures there that were so exciting, so kind of counter to all of the norms I was trying to think through and reject at the time, you know, especially as someone who had grown up in a pretty conservative town in Florida. Um, so, you know, I just hung out at the streets, danced at the bars, and it it started shaking me out of these kind of familiar grooves um, that I was in kind of helped me imagine new ways of living. And, you know, at the same time, the city was was rapidly gentrifying um, due to the, the dot-com uh, bust and boom. And a lot of new residents and business owners in the Polk Street area were closing down the queer bars. They were policing away uh, a lot of the queer populations and just completely demolishing what was exciting to me about the queer Polk Street. Uh, so I wanted to document that history before I felt it was going to be swept away um, and started doing this work as an independent historian outside of the academy. Um, so originally I thought I could kind of chart the history of the Tenderloin as a dispassionate observer and create a nice chronology, write it all up in a tidy little narrative. Um, but, you know, being in the Tenderloin, and I'll, I'll talk a little bit about um, what the Tenderloin looked and felt like, uh, was kind of like this whirlpool that picked me off the ground and threw me around and, you know, completely shattered what I thought I knew about queer politics, what I thought I knew about historical methods, um, what I thought I knew about just sociology um, more generally. Um, and so I had to invent new ways of doing research um, in a way that felt community engaged, in a way that felt ethical, um, in a way that, that felt like it wasn't completely exploitative or self-interested. Awesome. Thank you for that little overview. I think you definitely capture how you know, such a history in these places isn't a tidy little chronology. And I also really appreciate the parts where you highlight the community engagement involved in your project. It's really important to have those kinds of voices of lived experience informing this research. Um, so to set the scene a little bit for our discussion, can you provide a little description of Polk Street, and also what you mean by the term kids and their performative economies that you trace throughout the book. Sure. Yeah. So the Tenderloin is in the downtown of San Francisco. Um, if you view it on a, a map, it's this kind of triangular piece of land. Um, it borders Market Street, which is the city's main thoroughfare. Uh, and it's situated between, you know, some of the wealthiest uh parts of San Francisco. So like the upscale Union Square shopping district, it's kind of a retail corridor of Powell Street, 
um, and then the seat of city government at uh, Civic Center. Um, and then uh, on to the north, there are a lot of the big name tech offices uh, that moved there uh, when they were given significant tax breaks by the city. And those include, you know, Twitter, uh, Facebook, a, a lot of other uh, companies, right? So I, like I mentioned, I would walk around San Francisco quite a lot, and it's the city of hills. So when you walk up in the hills, um, you know, your vantage point on uh, the city, you see that Tenderloin is located in the kind of flatlands, right? So it's, it's this devalued land. Um, but when you walk through the Tenderloin, it's, it's this very emotionally intense experience, um, or at least it was for me. Uh, so even today, there are about, I think, 30,000 people living in about 40 square blocks. So it's one of the most densely packed districts in the city. Um, and even today, it, re it retains its function as a kind of haven, um, but also a containment zone for migrants and the poor. Um, so it's saturated with a lot of old stock housing dating, dated to the early 20th century. Um, there are these rescue missions, porn theaters, dive bars, um, but also a lot of nonprofit organizations that house residents on public assistance, the formerly homeless, uh, et cetera. And as I was mentioning before, I really started the project on Polk Street, which is on the very western edge of the Tenderloin and historically has been a slightly higher income area uh, than the kind of center or eastern part of the Tenderloin. Um, so this was the city's premier gay business corridor in the 60s and the 70s. Um, it later became a kind of national destination for one-away and throwaway youth, uh, many of them surviving through sex work. And also this, this kind of like older paternal social world of survivors and caregivers and clients. So when I started hanging out there in, you know, 2005, 2006, 2007, it was this, you know, diverse group of trans women, Johns, social workers, drag queens, tourists, all kind of out there cruising the streets. And... You know, as I mentioned, I wanted to approach this project uh, ethically and in a way that would not further marginalize or exploit very vulnerable populations. Um, so I started with this large-scale oral history project and recorded, you know, probably about 60 oral histories. And my goal was to use those stories that I record, recorded to intervene in a lot of the debates that were happening at the time about gentrification, about the, the kind of forced closure of queer and trans clubs, um, and about the criminalization of the homeless, right? So I worked with my, perform my informants to create all these audio portraits, to organize listening parties, uh, exhibitions, radio documentaries, and kind of mediated neighborhood dialogues um, in an effort to shape the conversation that was happening about the, uh, the um, gentrification of the neighborhood and the um, know, essentially the death of what had been uh, the queer Polk Street area. And at the same time, I was doing a lot of archival research 
So I started working at that tiny little nonprofit called the GLBT Historical Society, which had an archive in the south of Market. Um, and the archivist gave me a key. So I would go there late at night, you know, like 10 p.m., 11, while nobody was there and just kind of like pull boxes from the stacks and commune with all the queer ghosts in the archives. And, you know, one of the things I was struck by was just the kind of uncanny similarities between the tenderloin uh, that I was reading about of the, in the 1960s and the tenderloin that I was becoming a part of in the 2010s. So, you know, after that first oral history project, which was about two years, I worked for another two years on this project, sharing street youth archives with contemporary homeless youth. You know, so we, we created arts magazines. We held all these intergenerational dialogues. We organized walking tours and reenacted street protests from the 1960s, right? And so all of that was meant to push back against the, the criminalization of unhoused people at this time, and especially queer youth uh, through laws that had recently been passed like SITLAI. Right. So this is just to say that this project started out as this this grassroots effort to document a community's history and to use that history to make some kind of political impact in the present. Right. And so to answer your questions about, you know, the terms kids, um, as I was doing all of this work, as I was hanging out um, on Polk Street and in the Tenderloin, Mm. As I was pulling documents in the archive, uh, I, you know, I heard the, the term kid, uh, kids on the street, girls, boys, quite a lot, right? And so this is the way that many of the people I was interacting with were describing themselves. Um, so ultimately, I found that, you know, kids are usually teenagers through their early 20s, but the term doesn't necessarily refer to chronological age, right? So I found this gay bar rag from 1966 that read, the phrase kids on the street can mean of any age from 16 to 60. You know, one of my informants, a street minister, told me about like 30-year-old guys on Polk Street who call themselves kids. Um, so ultimately, I found that, you know, instead of chronological age, kids on the street refers to a person's role in the Tenderloin's intergenerational sexual economies and kinship networks. Um, you know, kids are those, regardless of chronological age, who perform a kind of youth to stimulate desire and potential clients. Um, kids are people who are cared for, you know, both materially and emotionally by people who identify as mothers, fathers, aunts, uncles, et cetera. Um, and you know, the term may have originated with migratory hobo cultures. So you look at studies of hobos in the early 20s, and they describe in detail the relationships between older men who were known as wolves or jockers, and then younger men or adolescents um, who were often referred to as, as chickens, punks, or kids. Right. So in other words, I, I found that people in tenderloin districts often uh, approach these kind of age categories, not as fixed, but relational and performative. Um, 
So eventually, you know, through when I enrolled in graduate school um, and started working on a dissertation, the project became this exploration of the politics and the kind of informal support networks that street kids developed over time, um, not only in San Francisco's Tenderloin, but in Tenderloin districts uh, around the country. And I think, that, I mean, the conclusion I came to, which I present in the book, is that street kids in Tenderloin districts created this politics of reciprocity and mutual aid. You know, as early as the 20s and most, like, most likely earlier. So, you know, in really basic terms, reciprocity just means you watch my back and I'll watch yours. Um, and so they developed this kind of politics of mutual aid, not necessarily because they were heroic or altruistic, uh, because it was just a necessity for mutual survival. And this kind of politics, I argue in the book, permeated the entire street scene, right? Um, and then the second part of that, that argument is that street kids developed ways to instantiate and kind of embody this politics of reciprocity through a lot of different performative practices. Um, so that included religious ritual, the creation of street churches, uh, the creation of these uh, specific queer kinship networks um, that people called street families, um, sex work even, um, and then these wildly creative storytelling traditions that I picked up on as an oral historian. Um, and then the book focuses primarily on four practices, the kinship networks, my informants called street churches, or, I'm sorry, street families, all of these religious formations that I, I call street churches, uh, storytelling practices that enabled young people to secure employment in the vice and bar economies. And I, you know, I still find this very exciting, the migratory circuits that uh, connected far-flung tenderloin districts across the country. Um, you know, all the while fostering these kind of alternative socialities, cooperative economies, and novel forms of mutual aid. And, you know, I mean, the, the very, one of the very more academic parts of the book, which I hope is accessible to wide audiences, is the argument that all of these rituals, all of these kinship networks comprise a performative economy. And what I mean by that is just that uh, they develop this shared repertoire of creative strategies for managing the effective and ec economic impacts of abandonment, right? So it references all the reciprocities, obligations, and moral norms that are shared by a population, and in this case, uh, kids on the street and the way that they're materialized and transmitted intergenerationally via performance, um, broadly defined to include religious ritual, storytelling, kinship, and gesture. And, um, you know, like I, I feel like I really, as an ethnographer and oral historian and community organizer, I experienced the, the kind of traces of this migratory social world when I, walk the streets of, of San Francisco's Tenderloin. 
Awesome. Thank you for that description. I think you do capture a lot of the texture and what you're speaking to in the book. So I appreciate that in your writing. And I love how you mentioned working in the archives and kind of consulting with the queer ghosts of the past. I think in a lot of work, especially in activism and organizing, sometimes we forget about the work of generations in the past and some of our like queer and activist ancestors. Um, So to kind of pull on that thread a little bit, in the introduction, you say, my interest in the kids' world-making practices is more than academic. It is for me, as it is for my informants, a matter of survival in spaces widely regarded by outsiders as dirty, dangerous, and duplicitous marketplaces. The stories, the dramas, and the scenes I document played a central role in the development of one of the country's earliest and most visible queer public cultures. So what is the value of knowing the history of such a place like Polk Street and the kids' world-making practices, as you call it? Yeah, it's it's a good question. I mean, again, the argument I'm making is that street kids develop this politics of reciprocity and mutual aid and that that suffused the entire scene and they did that as early as the the 1920s um probably earlier uh, and found ways to pass that kind of cultural knowledge uh down over time through all these storytelling traditions you know fashion gesture etc Right, so that that's just to say that they developed um, what we might call a queer politics uh, that predates the politics developed by the homophile movement, um, predates the politics developed by the gay liberation movement, um, the second wave feminist movement, uh, you know, the modern trans movement. Um, but the politics they developed um, has really been overshadowed by these newer forms of activism. So I'm I'm hoping that one of the things this book can do is, you know, um, present these survival strategies, these um, ways of being in the world uh, defined by by mutual aid. And that those can be a kind of political resource in the present. Awesome. Yeah. And to go off of that, I think there's also a tension kind of, as you mentioned before, as going to communities like these and like kind of romanticizing them. And you write against the impulse to revise or romanticize these periods of histories and to, quote, insist on liberation where there may have only been survival. How did you approach this task and what helped you with this intention? Yeah, I, you know, and I'm not sure that I, I, I knew that this, that I had an intention to do this when I set out. I, like I said, when, when I started hanging out there, I really romanticized it as this space of outsider culture. Um, but I think if you're doing ethnography and oral history, especially, you know, in addition to archival research, it's hard to remain naive for very long. Um, so, you know, it became very clear as I was just kind of hanging out and forming relationships that there was a lot of exploitation. There were um, a lot of predators. There were a lot of dark things happening. Um, and my narrators, too, when I talked with them, often talked about 
the kind of paradox of these spaces, you know, like they were at once havens, um, but also, you know, kind of zones of abandonment and um, containment, right? So that's just to say that my informants were my first theorist. Um, I was also really influenced by um, Elizabeth Pavanelli, who has a beautiful uh, book, Economies of Abandonment. And I, you know, I'm just going to read a little bit from her book, right? So one of, one of her argument is that one of her arguments is that critical theory and progressive activism quote invest in the endurance of life and spaces of state of social abandonment because they consider these spaces capable of providing a potential for cultivating a new ethics of life and sociality. But if ethics is not merely a state of reflection, but also action, then our ethical relation to life within these extremes forms of potentiality is fraught, to say the least. The life worth living is not necessarily found within these zones of maximal potential, because the zones create such reduced conditions of life that the political desire for them to spawn or foster alternative worlds can seem naive at best and sadistic at worth. So, you know, that when I read um, that section of her book, especially, you know, the ideal that, you know, we, we look to these spaces as outsiders and academics um, and hope that they're going to show us these alternative worlds. There's something, yeah, on the one hand, either naive about it or even sadistic. So, you know, I've tried to show throughout the book that, yes, I mean, street kids um, developed at best uh, this this politics of mutual aid. Um, but, uh, you know, they could help one another while also harming each other. Um, they could victimize while also being victimizers, which is just another way of saying it's complicated. Yeah, thank you for speaking to that complexity and also sharing that bit. So um, to kind of shift a little bit towards some of the methodology you use, I love how in um, early in the book, you mentioned that River, one of the street pastors you worked with, insisted that you pay each person he arranged an oral history with $10. Can you share about why this was significant and also significant to include in the book, and do you have thoughts about what this meant for the researcher-participant relationship that you had? Meaning, like, were you concerned about it introducing another dimension of power imbalance in the dynamic, or was it justified as a way to compensate people for the emotional labor they were doing? I know there's probably not a black and white answer of one or the other, but I think it's interesting to speak to because paying people isn't always something that you see in more like ethnographic research or at least seeing discussed. Right. Yeah, I think I think increasingly um, among oral historians, there's an acknowledgement that in certain cases, it mm, it's a kind of ethical uh, choice to pay informants, but but I think you're right. It, it's not something you always see in ethnographic research. But yeah, I mean, River, River Sims was one of the first people I met on the street. He was a, a former hustler who had reinvented himself as this kind of queer punk minister. He wore, you know, leather jackets and 
you know, we went out on the street and, and served food to the kids. Um, so yeah, our, even my relationship with him was really transactional. Um, he told me that he'd arranged these oral histories with the boys, the kids, in exchange for my volunteer work for his ministry. Um, so, you know, I would prepare meals with him in his SRO apartment. We would drive it to him like Ali. I would help him unload his car and kind of serve a, a meal to the kids. Um, and then, yeah, he insisted that I uh, provide $10 for each kid. And he also gave them, you know, clean socks. So I remember, you know, like one day we interviewed this this 21-year-old 20, um, kid named Richard who had this um, beautiful mohawk. And Richard started telling the story about coming to Polk Street at 15. Um, you know, like he was dropped off in front of this trans club called Divas and all of the trans women uh, quickly took him Took, took him under their wings, you know, shared their food and money. Um, they, they made sure he found a place to stay. Uh, they made sure that he, if he needed a shower, he could wash himself. Or if he needed clothes, you know, they would take him to, to Goodwill, etc. So at the end of that interview, I gave him $10. Um, River handed him a kind of pair of clean socks. And... You know, like when I started recording, when I started the project, I worried that all of these transactions, you know, the cash for the interviews, the volunteer work for for River would somehow cheapen the auth authenticity of the historical narrative I wanted to write. But, you know, through experiences like these with, with Richard, I really came to realize that they, the transactions were at the heart of the story that I needed to tell. As a kind of young researcher in the Tenderloin, I was becoming another link in the reciprocities, the, the forms of mutual obligations that comprise people's everyday survival on Polk Street and in the Tenderloin. And, you know, like in the process, I was being drawn into this social world, drawn into these kinship networks that I was trying to write about, drawn into these religious formations that um, I call street searches. So, I, you know, I think it was, it was important for me to experiencing these networks myself um, to kind of experience them in my own body on the street, um, in part because I don't know that I would have picked up on those part patterns um, in the archive had I only conducted archival research. Yeah, thank you for speaking to that. And I think it also shows a lot of, you know, what we can learn by actually being part of, you know, the cultures that we're engaging with and not necessarily just kind of the textbook way of doing things. I'd love to continue following this thread that you mentioned for Richard's story of like him coming to the Tenderloin and how he kind of became part of these street families. And you talk about how for the kids in the Tenderloin home is not necessarily the middle-class sense of a 
quote, private domestic sphere, but instead are extensions of the street scene. Can you expand a little bit for us of what home meant in terms of relations of reciprocity, mutual aid, and how individual traumas factored into these street families? And how does this differ from the dominant idea of home as a middle-class private domestic sphere and challenge us to reconsider stigmas of such settings and kinship formations? Sure. I mean, I think that the single room occupancy hotels were often home, um, but they were extensions of the street scene, which is just to say that people were coming in and out of the hotel rooms and out onto the streets constantly. You know, uh, there was kind of this, this constant movement back and forth. Um, but, you know, one of the interesting things I found through archival research is that kids pulled their their funds um, to obtain housing in all of these cheap rooming house districts that dotted the, the central city. And that, that was true, you know, at least from the 1920s through, uh, you know, the, the early 2000s. And in these spaces, you know, that the veteran street kids initiated newcomers and, you know, taught them how to how to hustle, how to avoid the police, how to share resources, how to become part of this world that was based around the, the kind of ethic of, of reciprocity. So, you know, like there, there was this queen in Seattle's Pioneer Square who um, in an oral history recalled housing up to a dozen kids at a time in the 1930s. And, um, you know, she said it was like kids together, fellows, comrades. The gay kids looked out for each other. We had to. We had to protect ourselves. Or, you know, I, I interviewed um, a person named Michael Norton who hustled the San Francisco's Tenderloin in the 60s. And, um, you know, he talked about how kids, quote, watched out for each other. If one had a place to live, then three or four or five others would be living there. Each one would pitch in. None of us went hungry. Or, you know, just one last example, Joel Roberts, um, who also came to San Francisco in the 60s, you know, um, he was he was a beautiful storyteller. And he said, you know, I would look to the people on the street because there's a reason why they were there. And there was a reason why I was there. And that was because no one else would have us, basically. You've got no money. You've got no resources, no career, no family. What have you got? You've got your fellow freak on the street. But at the same time, he said there was bitchiness going on. There's competition. There were definitely kids who would steal from you. Right. So, you know, at best, this kind of pooling of, of funds and housing, um, just like creating new kinds of home for mutual survival is an example of the, the politics of reciprocity that I, I chart in the book. But then, you know, Joel reminds us at the same time that there was that competition. Um, there were those kids who would steal from you. So, again, it you know, it's complicated. Yeah, it's complicated. I think that's a great way to just sum up everything. Um, I'd love to continue talking kind of about this um, formation of street families and also what you consider to be street churches and 
we've talked a little bit about the street minister river i'd love to continue talking about his story and what he shares about his son as well which is honestly a very emotional narrative my first impression was that it felt kind of like an inversion of the biblical prodigal son parable which um for those that may not know it's a story where a son leaves his wealthy father and eventually loses all his money he then lives in awful conditions and realizes he could return to his father's house as a servant and receive better treatment and when he does return he is celebrated by his father instead of being punished so would you mind sharing a little bit about river's story pursuing his son and possibly speaking more to the um, syncretic religious practices of Polk Street and like how did street churches invert some religious practices and ideals specifically thinking of the antagonisms of Christian church and those like kids on the street yeah i so i spent a lot of time with river in his sro apartment and yeah there were photos all over uh this this one room apartment and you know, one day he just kind of motioned casually to one of the photos and told me that it was his his son. Um, and I could definitely see the the kind of genetic resemblance. Um, so he told me that his story needed to be recorded, um, but that it would be really difficult difficult for him to tell it. Um, I still don't entirely know why he wanted me to record it, but I'm I'm grateful that that he did. Um, but, you know, the story is that he had a son when he was 15 who was adopted out to a wealthy family. Uh, his name was Zach. Um, and then, you know, later in life, after River had become a kind of uh, queer minister, he found out where Zach was. And he found out that he was on the streets. He was a street kid um, on Polk Street and and out in Portland kind of traveling be between the two cities. So, you know, River looked for him. Um, he had photos of him. And eventually they connected and they developed this kind of relationship um, that was between a kind of minister and a street kid, like, like a lot of the other relationships he had on the street. Um, but River never told Zach who he was. Um, so the story is about, you know, River mm, going out and searching for his son, who he never knew, and trying to save him. And I think, I, you know, I'd, I'd rather people read the story in River's own words or listen to the story. Um, it's actually available online if you search for a radio documentary called Polk Street Stories. Um, you can actually hear River describe the story and talk about his son. Um, but, you know, like the more I was, uh, you know, spending time in the Tenderloin and in the archive, the more I found other people who were just kind of uncannily similar to River, right? So before I started working in the Tenderloin, I, I thought of queerness and religion and especially Christianity as being on, on opposite ends of the spectrum. But I met so many queer people who, practiced, uh, who practiced all of these 
you know, really creative forms of Christianity, you know. So Joel Roberts, for example, who um, uh, was one of the organizers of the street youth organization Vanguard um, in 1966, uh, talked about Christianity offering him resources for managing the abuse he experienced at home. You know, so he told me, quote, I don't have happy memories of my family, but while I was living it, I made it happy. I think that's part of why religion attracts me, because you get all of these religious stories of people turning something good out of something bad. Catholicism was a story about a man who was persecuted, beaten, and crucified, and somehow ended up being the winner. Right. So I, I love that that line, um, and I, I think he has expressed more or less the argument I make and the book about um, religion, you know, that it it wasn't um, only a kind of source of economic support for a lot of people living precarious lives. Uh, Catholicism in particular offered this kind of powerful critique of the moral order that cast queer street youth as unclean, as damaged, as deserving of abandonment, right? So I, I found this whole kind of like queer religious subculture that drew on scripture and ritual and kind of mobilized this Gothic Christianity to devalue the rich and powerful and ascribe the greatest worth to, you know, the, the people in the Bible identified as the least of these. Um, and a lot of these queer ministers too, used scripture, ritual, uh, to reinterpret uh, collective experiences of abandonment at, as these sources of power, which um, fueled their, their kind of path-breaking activism. And, you know, I'll just go back to Joel Roberts again, who is such a beautiful storyteller, um, who told me, you know, as he was beginning to think about organizing street kids through this organization, Vanguard, I felt hurt. Um, so, of course, identi identify the people. Uh, so, of course, I identify with the people who are wounded, not with the person who does the wounding. I don't identify with America. And suddenly I got all these beat writers who also don't. And I've got the gospel. You know, Jesus, again, is a big loser. And that's his appeal, right? So there's there's an entire chapter I have devoted to um, these street churches, which were, uh, you know, essentially kind of queer religious undergrounds that develop their own seminaries that ordain street kids into those seminaries and churches, and then, you know, went out on the street to provide food, housing, referrals. And as such, we're, you know, one part of that, that kind of ethics of reciprocity and mutual aid that define the entire street scene. Yeah, thank you for sharing about that. And you've alluded a couple times to the activism that was going on during this time. So I'd love to continue talking about that a little bit more. And earlier you mentioned the street sweeps that happened in the 60s and the 2010s. Would you mind telling us a little bit about that demonstration and the fact that two different generations of activists use the same premise? Like, what was the goal for those kinds of things? 
Yeah. Well, I mean, I've, I've mentioned Joel Roberts a few times, who is one, one of the people that organized um, this uh, organization, Vanguard. And, you know, one of the most iconic actions uh, they uh, organized was in response to police sweeps of the Tenderloin. Um, and, you know, those sweeps kind of figured the street kids as trash to be swept out of the neighborhood in the service of redevelopment campaigns. Um, but all of these kids, um, this this night, instead, they, they took up brooms. They held signs that read, all trash before the brooms. And, you know, they created this really brilliant um, uh, publicity opportunity. Um, and were able to make this kind of public argument that they were not trash that should be swept away, but people with value who could contribute to the health of the Tenderloin District, right? So in 2011, I think I've mentioned before, I worked with a lot of other people, um, this minister named Megan Rohr, uh, this uh, activist named Mia Too Much, and we presented archival materials, especially related to Vanguard, to contemporary um, homeless youth. And, you know, we talked about the policing of vice in the 1960s. Um, we talked about Vanguard's efforts to foster community dialogue, to, um, you know, use activists, activism to push back against the policing of public space. And the young people we were working on, uh, working with, uh, were especially upset about this new law that had been passed in San Francisco called the Sit-Lie Initiative, which criminalized sitting and lying on the city sidewalks. Um, and so one of the things we did through this project, um, which the young people themselves proposed is that we uh, reenacted that original street sweep from 1966. Um, and so in 2011, a group of young people uh, pushed brooms down the streets of San Francisco's gay Castro neighborhood and chanted, we won't be, off, we won't be swept off the streets and housing equals safety. And they did that because they were especially hurt that the Castro district had supported the passage of sit lie and felt like, um, you know, uh, the gay community with maybe a little bit more money was turning their backs on both the Tenderloin and the queer kids who, who lived there. Um, so Mia too much, uh, at a, a kind of rally after that action said, you know, across the country, queer youth flock to the Castro, but in the neighborhood, poor homeless people have a very bad rap and they get harassed constantly by the shopkeepers. We were there to show this is our neighborhood too. We have an investment in this community and we're going to sweep the streets of trash, not of people. So, you know, I think like recreating this action that took place 50 years prior was really moving for contemporary youth. Um, and at the same time, it was disempowering that 
they were still protesting these laws that keep poor people down and keep queer people down um, in a city that's supposed to be a kind of safe haven. Um, you know, I, I write quite a, li- a lot more about that project in the book, but the basic idea is to attempt to use archival material, historical material, to make some kind of political impact in the contemporary moment. Yeah, thanks for going over that. I think it's very powerful to hear about such demonstrations and also kind of like you mentioned, discouraging to hear about how a lot of these issues persist. But I appreciate you highlighting the entanglement of a lot of different issues and regimes of oppression such as poverty or like how race factors into these issues that impact the lives of queer youth and um, unhoused populations. To continue going on this discussion of activism, I'd love to talk a little bit more about Vanguard, which you've spoken to a little bit about. At one point, you were tracing the history of Vanguard, and you experienced some conflict from competing claims of who founded the organization. Would you mind talking a little bit about the desire for authority and social status that these encounters suggest and how this is connected to Vanguard's focus on economic and social inequality in their work? Yeah, so I ended up conducting oral histories with three former organizers of Vanguard, and um, they were really unlike any other oral histories I had conducted before. I mean, like, they people leapt up and started dancing during the interviews. Like, a, another person just started reciting poetry, you know. Um, they were very emotional interviews as well, you know. They kind of confessed the, the anguish of losing so many friends on the street. Um, or they, you know, expressed anger they still felt uh, at their their parents, right? Um, but one of the things that happened um, is that, you know, conflict erupted when two of my informants demanded that I recognize them as Vanguard's sole founder, um, which put me in kind of an impossible position. Right. So I, you know, when I told one of the the narrators about the compete, competing claim, he became enraged and cut off communication. Um, another informant sent me hundreds of mails uh, over the years, uh, most of them demanding that I name him founder. Um, and you know, um, on the one hand. It, it was it was very, I guess to say to say the least, irritating. On the other hand, um, I I I appreciate it because it really feels like history reaching up from the past and kind of grabbing me by the throat and not letting me go. You know. Um, so, you know, we often think of history as something that is like past and gone and kind of dead. But this conflict for me was the the past erupting into the present, right? 
because if you if you look in the archive and look at all the archival um, documents, one of the things that led to Vanguard's disillusion in '67, about a year after it formed, was the same were the same conflicts over leadership, right? And so the argument that I I make in the book at the end of that chapter on Vanguard is that this conflict in the 60s and in the contemporary moment is, you know, ultimately about this desire for um, authority and social status that had been stripped um, from young people forced to survive in Tenderloin districts, right? And I think that this is probably especially true for young white males um, who had been stripped of the kind of cultural authority that was supposed to be reserved uh, for them. So, you know, I vacillated a little bit as to whether I should even write about this conflict, um, because usually oral historians like to talk about how we develop shared authority with our informants. Like, that is the key phrase that oral historians use. And, you know, through a lot of the public uh, humanities projects I developed, I, I definitely did uh, develop that kind of um, shared authority, and that was that was powerful. But the argument I'm trying to make in the book is that it's equally important to talk about when that shared authority breaks down. Um, and it's equally important to approach that as evidence that can shed light on not only on historical subjects, but uh, the contemporary moment. Yeah, thank you for speaking to that. That was a very vivid picture of what goes on, and I appreciate you sharing about some of the complexities that these um, encounters bring up. I'd love to continue this conversation by talking more about gentrification and how that figured into your work as you were in this um, you know, and as you mentioned before, San Francisco and the areas of Polk Street and um, what was the Tenderloin. So speaking to the moral economies and gentrification, you say, quote, what is at stake in the transformation of districts like Polk Street is our ability to remember the politics of mutual aid that wants to find the migratory scene and to imagine new ways of being and becoming. The scene, as you've discussed can be very dangerous, yet in many cases, the kids made networks of support and reciprocity in street families. However, with businesses and neighborhood associations coming in, they demanded a very different scene in the name of quote unquote safety. Can you talk through some of the tension between understanding things like safety that structured how people were able to live in Polk Street and how gentrification became involved? Sure. Yeah. Um, I mean, as I, I mentioned, I recorded more than 70 oral histories with, with people on the street. And one of the things those enabled me to do was document all of these non-biological queer kinship networks or family structures, right? Um, so business owners and a lot of neighborhood associations uh, in the early 2000s were at the time kind of framing their law and order approach to the street 
you know, like that their uh, their move to shut down queer businesses, to police people away. Um, they didn't want to frame that as, as gentrification. They, they wanted to say that they were promoting safety and cleanliness. And a lot of people justified their actions by appealing specifically to the safety of families and children. Um, but, you know, that this kind of first public humanities project that I, I worked on where, you know, I, I interpreted the oral histories through um, listening parties, through exhibitions, um, through radio documentaries, etc., the whole point was to challenge these claims that people were promoting safety and family by, um, you know, promoting alternative understandings of both of those conflict, uh, both of those concepts, um, by by presenting these kind of counter narratives drawn from the oral histories I have conducted, right? So basically, if if developers in the city at this time claimed that they wanted to make the streets safe for families, um, the oral histories I recorded, you know, essentially said, well, safe for whom and and whose families? And I hope that the book itself um, builds on that project by, you know, outlining uh, not only the the kind of kinship networks that existed on Polk Street and in the Tenderloin in the 2010s, but showing what a long history they have um, in the country as a whole. Yeah, thank you for discussing that. And in the in the conclusion, you talk about a mural project that I think encapsulates your point about gentrification and how history of the kids on Polk Street is being whitewashed and sanitized by different business interests. Can you share some of that example and speak to the politics around remembering and forgetting queer and trans history? Sure, yeah. I mean, the, the mural project I think you're talking about um, was initiated by the Mayor's Office of Economic and Workforce Development. Um, in collaboration with the Neighborhood Association on Polk Street that was blamed for a lot of the gentrification at the time. So they decided that they wanted to, you know, at the same time that they were sweeping the queer Polk away, they wanted to commission two murals depicting Polk Street's queer history. Um, And they actually did commission two artists uh, to create those murals. But when the artists unveiled their mock-ups, uh, they, the association meeting members were completely outraged. Um, one of them, you know, depicted thousands of people marching to city hall, um, Jose Saria, uh, protesters clashing with the police, which, you know, is a fairly accurate dis- dis- uh, depiction of, of what Polk street was. Another depicted a, a hustler among other subjects. Um, but you know, the people who commissioned these murals did not want to highlight that kind of history on the street, and they quickly shut down that entire project. So, you know, I mean, the, the explanation for this outrage is pretty clear. You know, business interests were trying to transform Polk Street's historically seedy image and kind of redevelop the street. They, they didn't want murals depicting sex workers or riots. 
Um, they wanted a kind of whitewashed history that would demonstrate their embrace of diversity while also furthering their redevelopment agenda. So um, Ron Case, who is the co-founder of the Neighborhood Association uh, in you know, one of the newspaper articles from the time, you know, they asked him, what, what, kind of, what did they want the mural to actually depict? And he said, something beautiful, like flowers. Right. So, yeah, I think you're right that um, uh, this encapsulates the point that I'm trying to make in the conclusion, um, which is just that, you know, the the city uh, redevelopment interests, um, neighborhood associations have succeeded, at least on, on Polk Street, of demolishing a lot of what remained of the queer polk. And at precisely the same time, they have begun acknowledging and memorializing that history through, you know, museums, historical districts, um, murals. Uh, They've renamed uh, streets after transgender icons, et cetera, right? So the, it, my argument and the conclusion is that this is not a desire to remember what has been lost. Um, this is a, an example where powerful interests are, are kind of appropriating the history of street kids beyond recognition and using it to, to kind of serve their own economic and political aims. Um, but, you know, having said that, cultural memory is, is pretty resilient. I think that people will continue to pass down the kind of politics of mutual aid and performance um, in any way that they can. Uh, and, I, you know, I'm excited to see what the future of the queer tenderloin uh, looks like. Yeah, thank you for that. I'm definitely excited as well and very grateful for you and all the people that were involved in your research for helping document these generations of activism and resiliency and, you know, the politics of mutual aid that you've spoken to. So thank you for this work that you've done. Um, Has there been anything that we haven't had a chance to touch on that you would like to speak to before we wrap up? I don't think so. Yeah, thank you again for um, inviting me to this this interview and for asking some some really compelling questions. Yeah, of course. Thank you so much, uh, Dr. Plaster. I've really appreciated our conversation and being able to read your book and dive into some of the history and experiences of the queer Polk Street. So thank you for sharing this work with the world, and I really appreciate you joining me today.